0: Welcome back to another episode of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa. Today's our first show for April 2018. In order to do that show right, we need to bring back our perennial April Fool. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: I'm fine. I'm Hopeful that at this point in my life, it's actually stopped snowing. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> You're in New Hampshire. You never know. There we go. So,
0: Jim, a lot of news recently coming out. Let's talk about it briefly before we continue with the third installment of our Indiana Jones Star Wars History in the Parks. First thing I want to talk about, Bob Chapik recently got put in charge of uh, Parks, Resorts, the Disney Store Consumer Experiences. Yeah, and ladies' handbags and lingerie. I think what was the uh, so a
1: whole big reorganization that, that Disney announced. Right, what's uh, what do you make of that? Bob came into the parks out of consumer products, right. So it's not really a surprise that they would fold that back in, make it part of his turf. Also, we've discussed on our Star Wars show, particularly about Galaxy's Edge, about how retail and the Disney theme parks are really going to start to get involved with one another. For example, handmade merch being sold in Batu that would only be available there. So it does make sense that the parks and consumer products have a closer relationship. In his job title is Parks, Experiences, and Consumer Products, because this actually ties in with, you know, as you recall, your experience with The Void, the Star Wars experience there, you were the one who pointed out that Disney just bought a chunk of the company that does The Void. This is where Disney is headed, Len. Even as Disney has torn down Disney Quest and is putting up that NBA thing, here is Disney moving back into that space, but in a very different sort of way. You can create... All sorts of adventures in literally a void. You can just take an empty space and... You can go visit Star Wars. You can hang out with Indiana Jones. Once Disney finishes buying Fox, we're headed back to Pandora. To date, out in the world, there are three of these void complexes. There's the Mm -hmm. one at Disneyland in downtown Disney. There's the one at Disney Springs. And the other one is a standalone in London. Right. They've
0: done pop-ups in like Utah and uh, New York City, but the three bigger ones are where you just
1: mentioned. Yep. If you remember the Disney Quest plan, Disney announced that at full build out, they'd have 30 of these things worldwide. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Disney experience, the whole notion of being able to do something like this away from the parks, Disney sees as a whole new revenue stream, which is, and Bob has been given the job of, we've seen the reaction we're getting on property with this. We believe strongly in this company. Go. All I can say is get ready because they're coming. The work's already underway on not necessarily the replacement for what you did with the Void at Disney Springs, but the notion of they want repeat customers. So it's like, oh, do do you want to go back to Darth Vader's base or is there someplace else we could take you? Right. That would fit in well with the
0: things that we've heard about Galaxy's Edge, where you have this reputation that stays with you throughout the course of the adventure. If they can do something similar with a VR experience, where let's say you do one mission that does meeting Darth Vader, but then you come back on another mission and your character experience gets retained with you, that would be big. So the the idea, and we talked about this on the show, the idea of there being consequences in games, I think is uh, is interesting and hasn't really been explored a whole lot. So I could uh, I could definitely see that happening. Let me ask you this question, Jim: Is the Disney Cruise Line under Parks and Resorts
1: or Experiences? Cruise line remains at our parks and resorts. Okay. Though, so, again, we have three more boats coming. Hopefully, sometime in the next year, we're going to start to hear about cool. these new ships and what the next generation of the cruise experience will be like. Because give me a large empty space in the middle of the boat. And it's just sort of like, excuse me?
0: Yeah. You could do a lot with it and you can reconfigure it too. I think that's one of the obvious applications of the software is putting it on a, on a cruise ship where you don't need too much. Maintenance to run it. It's not super labor intensive, and yet you can have a different experience every time you you go on it, especially since Disney's been doing these Marvel Day at Sea and Star Wars Day at Sea experiences to be able to add something like that in. Oh, good. Yeah. It's a no brainer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One other quick question about this reorganization. If I understand correctly, the three arms of the the company are now basically
1: streaming and television, right? Mm hmm. Are movies under that or no? Uh, ESPN is kind of plowing the road with the Disney streaming effort. They're the ones who're going to sort of do the proof of concept that sort of thing. But coming right behind that is in 2019 is the Disney streaming thing. It right. was just chatting with somebody on the Muppet side of things, and they're definitely reviving the Muppets for that part for of streaming. Yep. The Muppets never do well on networks, but syndicated or get with a piece of straight pipe for their specific audience, yeah. they become a hit again. So that's pretty much what that's about. But Iger really, really believes this is where the future for the company is at. In fact, that's kind of what was driving the whole Fox acquisition, you know, the notion to have this huge library of films to draw from and to have all of their franchises and that sort of thing. But now, what gets a theatrical release versus what gets streamed? I want to say it was John Favreau, who mm-hmm. he's just been signed to do a new series of Star Wars television stuff, but that's for the streaming service.
0: Oh, it's for streaming. I didn't know that. Yeah. Other big news that came out recently, Disney is going to start charging for parking at its resorts in Walt Disney World. Uh, so it's $13 a day for value resorts. $19 for moderates and 24 for deluxes, I believe,
1: starting March 21st. Jim, what's your reaction on that? too isn't going to pay for itself. Disney is investigating every possible revenue stream. I think this one, for a lot of folks, is going to be kind of a hard one to stomach initially because it's like, wait a minute, why are you charging now? Why do we start at $13? But if you look at other resorts within the industry, and face it, Universal has been doing this basically since day one. It's just sort of like, look, it's found money.
0: It's found money, James, in the, in the way that a mugger finds money on the street.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: like my Uncle Bobby used to find money on the street, in the pockets of other people. There we go. If you look at it from a numbers perspective, mm-hmm. Disney has 28,000 hotel rooms, even if they're getting 5,000 cars a night. Mm-hmm to buy this new parking thing, it's $35 million a year in revenue at $19 a night on average. It doesn't take an MBA to understand why they're doing it from a money perspective. Disney's not even trying to explain this Mm. as anything other than a money grab. Mm -hmm. Their entire rationale is 80% of other resorts around the country do it. I will point out this, 80% of other resorts are generally space-constrained. And that property has to make revenue for them, or either it's a very expensive property in the middle of a town. Disney doesn't have that particular constraint. It's literally just a, a money grab. I get it. Not even going to try and uh, try and defend it. What do you think it's going to do to people who
1: who want to visit Walt Disney World? Will, will more people stay off site? Do you think Disney really is dealing with it, this issue? That the narrative is Disney World has all these wonderful attractions and very entertaining but there's always the but and it's about how expensive it is whether it's food or merch or now parking it concerns me that you can't turn that narrative around at this point and we keep talking about the 50th anniversary coming up and for all of the money that Disney is putting into the ground for Guardians and Ratatouille and that sort of thing, you want people to go and say wonderful things about what you've put in. You don't want them to continually talk about how much it costs to go there because you do have serious competition down the street. But what's your take on it? Is this going to do any damage? Or
0: I don't think it will. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, the average length of stay, four or five days, mm-hmm. for a value resort, it's going to add what? 39 to $52. No one's going to stay off site for that. Yeah, I, th- I think Disney's looking at this and saying most people are just going to go along with it.
1: I mean, they'll suck it up, but they won't necessarily be happy.
0: No, that's the other thing. It's going to put pressure on park ops and all of the other areas mm. to live up to the cost of the trip. So, you know, if I go somewhere and I pay I pay $10 for a meal, I'm going to have a vastly different uh, expectation than if I go somewhere and pay $100 for a meal. And I think that's the thing that Disney's getting into here where all of these small fees, when you look at the aggregate spend for Disney vacation, it had better be spectacular. And in instances where the parks can't do that, can't deliver on that expectation, that's where they're going to run into trouble. And it could be that at some point they reach a level where... Every single thing that they do has to be stellar. And for something as large as Disney, there's just no way that they can deliver on that. It's just simply not possible across 28,000 square acres to deliver a consistently good experience.
1: People are going to pay for this in advance, or is this now going to be, if, for example, I roll up to Art of Animation, is this Hmm. a, does the guard there who previously just checked my ID or that sort of thing, are they now going to be expected to also collect that fee? Because I don't think these boots are actually set up for that.
0: Laurel's observation is that Disney has so many new visitors every year that many of them don't realize that Disney's uh, not charged for parking in the past. Okay. Which is a valid point. But let me explain how this is going to work, and I will uh, I will share with you an interesting little tidbit that I've heard. as mm-hmm. a rumor. So you drive up to the front gate. The security detail will ask you if you're checking in. If you say yes, they will associate your car with your resort folio, mm-hmm. your My Disney Experience identity as well, and that's how you'll be charged. And it's on a per night basis. So let's say you're staying for three nights, you'll automatically be charged three nights. It's on a per car basis. So if you have two families on the same reservation, each driving their own car, each car gets charged once. So it's, if you have two cars and you're staying at a value resort, it's $26 a day, not $13. In the scenarios where you don't have you're not, you don't have a car for the entire length of your stay, or let's say you're, you're getting in a day early or you're staying overnight, you know, say in the Magic Kingdom, I'm told that the front desk is gonna go resolve all of those issues. So if you have any questions about that, it's a trip to the front desk. Here's the interesting thing, Jim, that Disney hasn't said. Whoa. How are they gonna know whose car is whom's in the parking lot? Ooh. I know how they're gonna know, do you know? They're gonna start photographing and tracking your car while you're on property. Software is being installed to do this. I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> so I had a number of questions for media relations mm-hmm. that I asked when this thing came out. And they were very gracious. They answered all of them very quickly, mm-hmm. very professionally. And these are questions that are coming in from our readers, right? So I'm just I'm just, you know, passing them on. The last question I got was, is Disney going to be photographing, tracking, or storing any of my vehicle information while I'm on site? And that one I sent in and didn't get an answer on it. But coincidentally, somebody texted me, a cast member texted me later on to say that uh, the security will be installing software soon to do all of this. Mm -hmm. That is interesting, James. If it's true, by the way, still a rumor, Disney hasn't confirmed it. They haven't denied it either. But you remember when Magic Bands came out, when John Kerry and Markey? Yes, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, yes. Mm -hmm. Started asking questions about who's tracking what, where, and how. I think Disney's going to get the same set of questions Around this, so who within the Disney organization is going to be able to see license plate numbers? How long is it going to be retained? Can it be sold? Can it be shared? What if I don't want to do that? You know what happens? How are people people consent to that? These are all good questions, and and let's face it, we all know this is true. Disney rolled this policy out without thinking through all of these details. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm not, you know, asking anybody for any of the
1: details, but I expect that those things will uh, will eventually be asked. Nobody is better at data harvesting and figuring out how people actually behave Based on the hard numbers than Disney. So going to be interesting to see what they do with that info and how many additional garages get built at Disney Springs. We talked about this. Remember, it's like, why are they building
0: so many garages? Well, yeah, $13 a pop, I'll build garages all day long. There we go. We'll be back in just a minute to jump into our topic for the day, which is part three of our Disney, Lucas and Spielberg conversation. That's next on the Disney Dish podcast. Welcome back to the Disney Dish podcast, Jim. Let's pick up then with the final installment of our story about how Indiana Jones Adventure and the Epic Stunt Spectacular ended up in the Disney parks. And I think the last time we we talked, we left off. Michael Heser had just become CEO. Mm-hmm of the company, and we were in very early 1985, right? Yep. Doing
1: his first uh, shareholder meeting. Do you want to uh, pick up there? Yeah. So remember, it's it's Ron Miller who'd actually plowed the road, who'd had the initial meetings with George Lucas about them doing attractions for the parks, but it's Eisner who three months after he's come through the door is the one who gets to announce to the world, hey, you know, George Lucas has cut a deal with us, and we're going to do an attraction that features the characters and settings from the Star Wars movies. And But this mm-hmm. is also when Eisner reveals that they're looking to do a third gate for Florida and that it's... It's going to be this complex that it's a working television movie studio, and also it's going to be something that celebrates the golden age of Hollywood. Now, the wheels within wheels here, Eisner was under real pressure to up the number of releases that Disney City was doing. So the thinking was that, and it's cheaper to make movies in Florida. So there was, you know, that was kind of one of the hidden agendas about opening MGM. Right. But at the same time, it was also about, well, what are we going to put in this park, especially to celebrate the golden age of Hollywood? And so if you look at the stuff that they announced when they got that much more specific in July of 85. You had a Mm -hmm. great moments of the movies ride, which was, of course, mutated in the great movie ride. But at this point, what always makes me a little crazy is when you hear about what you almost got. And, you know, for example, the way the attraction was originally supposed to end wasn't going over the rainbow and hanging out with Dorothy and the Munchkins and Oz. You were supposed to be on the roof of 55 Central Park West and your car was going to be between the Ghostbusters and the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But again, that was MCA swooped in and, and scooped those rights. But at the same time, this early on, the park was going to have not one stunt show, but two stunt shows. They were going to have. Really? Uh, yeah. The idea at that time was that you enter this arena and you. You're facing Mm -hmm. this stage that, in this case, recreated Keystone Studios. And the notion is you're looking at this sort of recreation of an old silent film studio and sort of the classic way that these things happen, a narrator comes on stage and... Explains what you're looking at, but at the same time, we have this actor enter who's kind of a Buster Keaton-like character, and over the course of the show, he manages to disrupt everything. And in fact, as the slapstick show ends, literally the entire theater is falling down, not only the people on stage, but, you know, the people who are out in the arena. (laughs) In the end, there was only so much money, and they were running behind schedule. so it's like, okay, so... Let's take you know, the money we we're going to spend on the slapstick show and let's do the citizens of Hollywood, the streetmosphere thing. Which,
0: by the way, is a lot cheaper and doesn't require you building a building.
1: Yeah, well, no, that's it exactly. It, right. In much the same way, to, people don't remember this about the first year of the opening of the studio where people would be standing in line for hours and Disney hadn't made any shade structures.
0: Oh, no, I remember this. is This is the story of how I decided to write the touring plant software. I ended up waiting in line
1: in the sun for two hours for a great movie ride. Yeah, but remember how the Streetmosphere characters would basically cruise the line and interact? I mean, they saved the day. That park would have had so much worse a reputation. In fact, I remember there was one woman... Who basically walked down the entire line and she was sort of a chairwoman, you know, a janitor character, but she was carrying a water spritz bottle with her and God love that woman. <laughs> she saved lives. She did. She's out here saving lives. <laughs> oh, honey, let me help you. Those characters, at one point, I Disney they had their their people in the park, counting the number of people who were being entertained by Streetmosphere, they were doing better on an hourly basis than The Stunt Show, which, again, you know, the Indiana Jones Stunt Show, 2,500 people in that theater. Yeah. So how did we end up with The Stunt Show? Well, Star Tours opens uh, January 1987 at Disneyland. Uh, George Lucas Mm -hmm. waited to see how that was done Liked how it came out and said, okay, you can also have the rights to indie. So, fall of '87, Disney News Magazine, reporters walking through the building and looking at the 40 different projects that are up. And the article mentions that he walks by artists sketching layouts for a possible Disneyland jungle ride based on the adventures of Indiana Jones. The question was, okay, how are we going to do this? What do people want to experience? And so Disney goes out, they do some survey work, they talk with fans of the film, they talk with fans of the park, and basically what they get back is that if I'm going to an Indiana Jones attraction, I'd love to have something that's like the opening of Raiders where you're in that temple and you know, the mm-hmm. giant boulders rolling at me, but at the same time, I really love that scene from Temple of Doom where Indy and-
0: Oh, with the mine carts? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so what can you give me that's like that? And it's like, well, wait a minute. If we're doing this for Disneyland, we've got a car. We've already got an attraction that's a runaway train thing. That's mm-hmm. Big Thunder Mine Train. Yeah, right. and also we have mine cars in in Snow White. So, what can we do? How can we make this different? And when you look at where these films are set—Peru, Egypt, Shanghai, India—the only place that makes sense for this attraction to be put. Is Adventureland right? This is the most tightly constrained land in the parks. The so Jungle Cruise literally goes right up to the edge of, of Main Street.
0: Oh, it's massive! Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the uh, the water support and the uh the storage and stuff like that. Oh my God! Yeah, it's huge.
1: But particularly at Disneyland. In fact, there's a famous story about how Walt's grandkids he used to take the kids there and stay in the firehouse upstairs. And what would happen mm-hmm. is that the kids. When Walt wasn't looking, would run out the back door and go into the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> I would do it. Stand at the edge of the water and get sort of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah at the tourists. And the Jungle Cruise boat driver like, Walt's grandchildren are in the jungle again. Got <laughs> gotta get them out. So there's no room to expand there. Likewise, if you yeah. think about where New Orleans Square and Pirates of the Caribbean is, you've now got these two bookends. So the only place you can go is out into the parking lot. But it's yeah. then like, well, how the hell do we get these people back there? And it was Herbie Ryman, imaginary legend, who actually came up with the solution. Why don't we stop thinking of the Jungle Cruise as an attraction and think about it as a transportation system? What if you were to board the Jungle Cruise and instead of floating by a scene, like, you know, for example, remember that gorilla encampment scene? Mm-hmm. Yep. What if instead of floating by the encampment, got off the boat and you walk into the jungle and there at the, the edge of the berm was a temple. And this idea really intrigued the Imagineers because it was the whole notion of, well, look, we could take an attraction that's been there since 55 and suddenly reinvent it. Imagineer Bob Baranek almost 20 years ago uh, gifted to my ex-wife a piece of concept art for it was actually the site plan that they used to sell Disney management on this. Wait, he gave it to your ex-wife because you have well, it. Well, you know, it's it's one of these things <laughs> where. Uh, do we need to hear the story, James, or do we need to get lawyers involved? I, I'm holding it, <laughs> holding it. I'm yeah, holding yeah, yeah. it. Whatever yeah, Michelle right. wants it back, that'd be happy to to schlep it out to California, but. <laughs> But yeah, we we brought this to the Indie Disney meet. In fact, the thing is, I'm embarrassed... Right, last
0: year, yeah, yeah. I'm
1: embarrassed that we were at the Indie Disney meet showing them Indiana Jones art and never made the Indie indie meets Indie. Oh, we didn't make the joke. We didn't make the joke. It was right there. we're slipping. Okay. You know what? I was jet-lagged. I was car-lagged. There we go. Uh, That's what I'm going with for my excuse there. So the notion is you get off the boat, you walk to this temple, and again, the fine Disney tradition, something goes horribly wrong. And in fact eddie sato who worked with herbie on this told me that when you went on the great movie ride you know that scene where right after you pass the uh, indian sala and the well of souls you know they're taking the ark of the covenant out and yep, you, yep. you then you know the gangster's like hey look at that ruby i'm gonna go get that you know and then they run up yep that whole gag the touch the gag and the CO2 smoke and the skeleton and all that, that was actually done for this version of the indie ride. In fact, your guide was supposed to take you into the temple and then you know get tempted by this object and he's gone. You know, suddenly he's Oh, so that was gonna be oh. And then they lift it for the studios. They'd written it, everybody loved it, but they yeah. opted not to go forward. With the disneyland project and and when you talk about how ambitious the disneyland project was at this point you're now inside the trunk temple and you, your guide is dead and it's like what do you do well it's like well if you go to the left you can find your way to the motor pool and there you can climb on a jeep and you roll in and out of the temple and along the edge of the the jungle cruise and on the other hand if you went to the right you got in the ore car, and you're now going past the bubbling lava pools. And
0: Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, But
1: because Eddie is such a big fan of Knott's Berry Farm, there's the mine train attraction there where they have one big central room that mm-hmm. the train sees and the, the people who are riding the mine car see. And... Eddie was thinking, well, that's what we should do with Indy. We should have it so if you're on the ore car, you come back to the big main room. If you're on the Jeep, you come back to the big main room. And you can do the other thing. Yeah, if you're on the train, the Disneyland train, you you pass to the big room. And In fact, Brian Jowers did this amazing piece of concept art where Brian actually figured out how to make the Jungle Cruise go through the room. So <laughs> now it would have been killer. but But at the same time, it was so ridiculously expensive and it was yeah. being built... It involved you had to disrupt the train
0: the train the jungle cruise yeah and, it, yeah and it just
1: was one of these things where it's like can we in fact do this we're talking 85 86 87 where michael's like look we need to get stuff in these parks we need to turn this around yeah. already the imagineers they'd figured out how to do splash mountain where Indy was still kind of fumbling at this point so in the end, Eisner's like, I can turn a key right now on Splash Mountain. In fact, late 1987, they began site work on up in Bear Country for, for that flimboard. Cool. And so Indy got kicked down the road a little bit. Now this is 88. And clearly the Imagineers are like, oh, oh we want to do something with Indy now. And meanwhile, they're working on the studio three hundred million dollar project, but you know they're looking for cost efficiencies and.
0: So, so wait. This is the middle of nineteen eighty eight. The park opens in nineteen
1: eighty nine. Oh yes, in fact, let me let me tell you how late <laughs> okay. late in the game they made the decision to bring Indy in. The official announcement that there was going to be an Indiana Jones stunt show at Disney MGM is made on September second, nineteen eighty eight. We are. Eight months at that point out from the opening of this park.
0: Holy cow. My palms are sweating just listening to that schedule. Well, and, and,
1: but here's the other thing that kind of bit them in the butt that Lucas was like, okay, yeah, we can do a stunt show, but I don't want it to look like Universal stunt shows. I don't want it to look like here's a stuntman, you know, that like the thing they yeah. did in Hollywood that the the Universal Studios Hollywood Park where it's, it's the Wild Wild West stunt show. Where it's like literally guys Who every day dress up as cowboys and throw themselves off of buildings and it's just sort of like no i want this to actually we're going to recreate moments from the indie movies we're going to have people who perform performers who do stunts not stuntmen who are performing on lucas's orders disney didn't look for stuntmen they were looking for athletes they were looking for gymnasts but the problem is that again because they got started so late It just wasn't ready in time. In fact, for the April 30th, George Lucas and Eisner, first they dedicate the the theater by pressing down a plunger and then daytime fireworks go off. And then Mm -hmm. they take all of us into the theater and the only thing they have ready to show us at this point is the fight on the airstrip with the German air mechanic. That we get a little tease of, you know, the marketplace scene, but the only thing they've really got ready to show us. And then... At the end of this, we all get the opportunity to interview Iser and and Lucas. And Lucas, at that point, is like, you know, well, I'm really hoping three weeks from when they open the park is when Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade opens in theaters. And Lucas was like, this has got some really wonderful stunts and some amazing scenes. And I'd really love if we could get some of that stuff in the show at some point.
0: (laughs) And, And the show hasn't changed since it opened well, almost uh, 30 years hence. There we go. So, okay.
1: Show isn't ready. So what they basically tell folks is if you're in the park for the opening summer, you can come by and watch as we do technical rehearsals of the show. And in fact, it wasn't until August 25th, nineteen of 1989, five months after the park opened, finally, it's up and running, but it's not six weeks later that OSHA is...
0: OSHA shows up? Yeah. Hey, nice show you got here. Let's talk about safety.
1: Yeah. And Disney at this point had spent $20 million on the show, but they had also had cast members reaching out going... I don't know about this. Disney is asking us to do some stuff in the show that really concerns me. And so here's poor Charlie Ridgway. I mean, the, the PR guy for Disney. And because there's now inquiries, because Hosher is suddenly showing up at the Disney parks. It's like, look, I don't know anything other than there have been some minor falls. And and I know that it's part of the training process and that thing. There's a lot of sore muscles, but there haven't been any serious accidents. And it's just sort of like, you feel for Charlie that It's not eight weeks later that suddenly there was a malfunction on stage in December 13th, 1989, a a performer, Tom Ekos, was injured when the mechanical device that pulled off the illusion malfunctioned. And so he's gotta go to the hospital, they gotta shut down the show. I mean, it turns out he only had bumps and bruises, but this, as it turns out, is the third incident involving a cast member who's been hurt. Oh, really? And that was the thing It's like, third, is that why Osha got called? And OSHA is still in the middle of its investigation at this point. And now, of course, the Sentinel has to really push hard on it. And now the details start to come out about the first incident of the three performers. One was hurt because they fell 30 feet onto concrete. Ouch. And then another one fell off a ladder 25 feet. And it's like, in the end, by March of 1990, OSHA levels of fines you know Disney has to pay a thousand dollars and agree to make changes to the show but here's the kicker they doing the new version of the show at night so with the safety changes and April 4th 1990 while they're rehearsing after hours Poor Mara Hayes, who's a 29-year-old woman who's been doing the show. She's doing this, rehearsing the new version of the show, and she falls 20 feet to get the concrete floor and injures herself. And oh. so, But here's the thing. It's doing turn-away business life. Is it really? Okay. And, and at this point, you have to understand that it's so popular. This show that was originally planned to only be presented five times a day is now being presented eight times a day and they actually have to hire new cast members and train them to to accommodate the number of shows they have to do michael eisner is so excited by what he's shown that on december 12 1990 here's osha in the middle of investigating the show in florida because it's unsafe but here's michael Mm -hmm. eisner you know it's like screw the unsafe part. You know, can we do this in California?
0: <laughs> you know it's going to help the situation? Doubling down. There we go. <laughs> All
1: right, so December 12, 1990, here's Michael Eisner on stage at the Anaheim Convention Center talking about the fable Disney decade. And how okay. you know that for the next ten years, Disney's going to do so many amazing things. But the first thing out of the gate going to be opening summer of nineteen ninety one at Disneyland, the young Indiana Jones stunt spectacular, which will be built at <laughs> Disneyland. They're so confident this is going to be a hit. They're actually going to have the Disneyland train go through the show.
0: Wow! So I can't I can't wait to ride this again. Well, see, and, <laughs> there's probably a story there though, right?
1: Yeah, you know, that's the thing, you know. Remember, this was the first thing, the very first thing. Hughes Heiser talking in January of 1990. It's supposed to be over summer summer of 91. Why didn't it happen? Why is it that the Indiana Jones adventure, which at this point, it was so far down the road, it wasn't going to be opening till, you know, summer of 97. How does that end up opening in 95? Let's hold that till the next show. (laughs) That's fantastic.
0: All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.